Howdy. Welcome to 127 on the Mic. This sermon was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Daniel on Sunday nights here at 127. We believe that God has something unique to teach us and how the book of Daniel points us to how Jesus is the greater Daniel. If you have any questions, feel free to check out our website, which is fbcbryan.org slash college. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, guys. Hey, grab a seat. Grab your Bible. If you don't got one, there's one in a pew somewhere there around you or still your neighbors. That's fine, too. Daniel chapter 4, as you're turning there, a couple reminders of some things. Last week, I um, asked, last week, two weeks ago, I asked for a couple guys to step up uh, into some leadership positions of our prayer ministry, which happened in a, in a really cool way. Um, and so now I have to bring this back and ask for some other girls to step up into our prayer ministry space uh, to help even the numbers a little bit. And so if there's any of you ladies that are interested in taking a leadership role, which is not, uh, it's not a big buy-in, but it's an essential one. Um, so it's not going to require a lot from you necessarily, uh, but it will be an incredible uh, return on your investment within our ministry. And so if you're interested in that and looking for a, a place to lead and you're somebody that you think we can trust, I would love to have a conversation with you. So come find me afterwards, say, hey, I'm interested in that. Let's have a conversation uh, and we'll make that happen. And, and then lastly, uh, this week, if, if you haven't, if you're a freshman in the room and you're not going to freshman equip, shame on you, um, one, uh, but also uh, we want to give you another opportunity to connect. And so on Wednesday night, our freshman guys and girls are getting together. Um, I, think, I think that was a guy that was screaming, but it was really girly like. Uh, they're getting together uh, on world famous Lazy Lane uh, at some of our... Some of our freshman equip, some of our freshman equip leaders' house uh, for what they're calling the freshman equip cookout, which makes it sound like we're cooking freshmen. Um, <laughs> it's not what's happening. All right? it, it, it's a hangout. I, I don't know what they're eating that night or anything. I'm not responsible for the food that's happening that night. Uh, hot dogs, solid play. Hot dogs and burgers. Okay, two, so hot dogs are pre-cooked, and so there's safety there. Burgers, you may be a little bit sketchy of, but. Uh, if you're a freshman and you've been going to Freshman Equip, that's where you're going to be on Wednesday night. Pay attention to the time, guys. We normally meet at 9, uh, but we're meeting at 6.30 or 7.30, right? 7.30, pay attention to the time, girls, because you normally meet at 6, and now it's at 7.30. They did like an average. You see how that works? We just met in the middle, okay? It's a good piece of relationship advice also. Um, and uh, so it's all guys and all girls meeting together. If you're looking um, for a place to hang out on Wednesday night, they're going to meet at the church and then carpool over to Lazy Lane together. So make a note, be there Wednesday night. Okay, we good? All right, good, let's pray, and we're going to jump into Daniel 4. Uh, God, again, we, we need you. We've, we've declared loudly through song, and I, I think if we caught the words, we put you in your right place. Um, but as we just kind of chew through Daniel chapter 4, uh, this will sound weird, but would you give us the eyes that you gave uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar? Would, would we see you uh, in a new way? And we trust you to bring your word alive in us in a way that only you can, uh, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Daniel chapter 4, imagine that you're just walking through campus and you see at a distance the thing that a lot of you avoid, this guy who's handing out gospel tracts and you're, you're trying to, to decide how you're going to avoid this man and as you get closer, you begin to realize it, to your horror as he hands you this track that this person is old King Nebi of Babylon. It bothers you for a couple reasons. One, because he's like 2,500 years old. Hey, hey, hey. See what you did there? 
that should, like, he could have been 2,600 years. I don't know. Like, uh, so, um, I'm not going any farther for the rest of you that get really excited about that. Uh, that, that should bother you. But also, because we've gotten through the first three chapters of Daniel, you're kind of dumbfounded that this guy would have anything good to say or to be the one that is sharing the gospel with people, right? I mean, I mean, the start of his story was he captured and deported God's chosen people. He enforced his, like, ideas on people by threatening to chop off the heads of his subjects. He uh, has a dream and then forces some people to interpret his dream without him telling them what the dream was. Underneath that threat of killing them, he creates a golden statue, and if the punishment for you not falling down to worship it is that you are going to be incinerated. This is that king. And so you, you take the track and you're like, what good it, could King Nebi have to say about God? What kind of message is, is he spreading at this point? And here is his message. If you open your Bible to Daniel chapter 4, three times he says this. In verse 17, in verse 25, and in verse 32. And verse 17 says it pretty good halfway through. We'll just read all of it. This word is by decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants, and he sets the lowliest of people over them. That's, that becomes his testimony. He puts himself as now the lowliest of people, and he puts the most high, in capital letters, as ruler over the human kingdoms. This is going to be his testimony throughout this entire book. And so you're going, what has happened to this guy who just built this gigantic golden statue? What, what type of experience has he had at this point that allowed him to flip this switch in his brain? Well, this is kind of the truth that he kind of sets under really fast. Because of what happens in chapter 4, he's come to the conclusion that God is God and he is not. That God is God, and we can apply it to ourselves, we are not. Because of what happens, because he's humbled in this, and I was thinking about this story, and what kind of drove him to this point? C.S. Lewis kind of calls what, what King Nebi is struggling with the greatest sin. In his book, Mere Christianity, he, he writes this. I just want to read it to you because, I mean, it, it says so much better than anything that I could say. This is the beginning of chapter 8 of Mere Christianity. Now, now, I come to the part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they are not bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, and, and even that they are cowards. I do not think that I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite of it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual immorality, I warned you that the sinner of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the sinner. According to Christian teachers, this essential vice, this 
utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Man, does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed that someone else, who is big, someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. And, and this is why I think King Nebi and God went at it in the way that they were because he was prideful and he wanted to put himself at that, that place where God was and, and God was like, hey, this is not going to stand and so I'm gonna draw a line and this line is drawn in chapter four. We're gonna see this come alive really quick. Proverbs 8.13 teaches us this. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and pervasive speech. And, and perhaps no one in the Bible that we see came to understand this truth better than the king of Babylon at this point. Because he's proud of his accomplishments. He, he did a lot of things. He, he gave really good speeches. He built a lot of really cool things. And he learns the hard way, Proverbs 16, 18. You probably have it memorized. Even though you don't know, pride comes before a fall. And so when he begins to write, if, if you go through and just circle this, Daniel 4, 2, the most high God. Daniel 4, 17, the most high God. Verse 24, verse 32, verse 25, verse 34. Like he's all over the place calling him the most high. But how did he get to this point? I wrote this down. God hates pride because it challenges his sovereignty and questions his will and his ways. And I want to read this verse to you kind of as an ending, and then let's walk through the entire book together, starting in verse 37, the end of chapter 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heavens, because all his works are true, and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so through hum humiliation and through restoration, the most powerful man on the earth in that day reminds us of this simple truth that God is in control and we are not. He's the ruler over heavenly kingdoms. And these words that we see should be this assurance in us. It should be a comfort to us, but it should also be a warning and a wisdom that you should hold on to. And so, so what do we see about God humbling this king that we can apply to our life? We're just going to start in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth. Remember, we talked about that before, kind of how dangerous that was. That was Babylon. Then he tried to gather everybody together on the statue and be like, hey, every tribe worship this. Now he's flipped it to every people, nation, language who live on the whole earth. May your prosperity increase. This doesn't sound like him at all. 
I am, I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and the wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And we could get up and read this in its context at church and everyone in the audience is going to be like, amen, until you'd be like, yeah, those are the words of King, of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they'd be like, what? Like, I know the story. I've, I've been in vacation Bible school. I, I know the guys that were in the fire. It was his fault. How can he be saying this? How, how can these words just be recorded forever? One, like we think that Daniel's probably there with him, giving him some like theological words to write down. Like, hey, hey, Neb, you should probably like use this word. It'll go really, really well there. It'll make you sound like theologically correct. It's maybe, maybe not, but I think he's probably helping him write this. But, but this is a better thing. It is good for our God to, to, to bring about sorrow that leads to repentance. It's the first thing. It is, it is good for our God to bring about sorrow that leads to repentance. This is, this is Proverbs 18, 12. Before his downfall, a person's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. And chapter four ends, just like chapter three ends, there's this decree that this king puts out there for everyone to hear. And then we also see a dream that's fixing to happen in verse four and in the interpretation of the dream. But he begins with this, like missional, motivational uh, statement to every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth today. This is the powerful king. If he was alive today, he would have jumped on like Instagram and Facebook and, and gone live on Twitter or X or whatever we call it now. And, and he would have made this announcement going, hey, I need all of you to hear this, and then made his de declaration about God, and it was good for this to happen. Why? Because God has just humbled him and took him to a place of sorrow that led to his repentance, and now he gets to make this declaration. Verse 3 is, is this doxology, and it's a great doxology that, that's really sandwiched with verse 37 that we read. He kind of bookmarks or he brackets the entire chapter with this idea and it really just stirs my thoughts towards Psalm 145 13 uh, when we read your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom your rule is for all generations the Lord is faithful in all his words and he's gracious in all of his actions and I don't know if he had read that verse before or what but but he's helping us understand who God is his worldview his spiritual ideas about God have shifted it, he's just been flipped upside down on his head why because God's intentions and God's work in man often involves bringing great sorrow that leads to repentance and if you keep reading those of you that have read mere christianity you may remember this like 3 pages later, later he says this a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And so King Nebi here has just been looking down on others, but now he is looking up. And as he's looking up, he's glorifying the God that he sees. And it's a, the result of his sorrow, and it's good for our God to do that. The second one is this. It is good when God troubles our hearts in order to get our attention. And for some of you, this is real. Say it again, it's good when God troubles your hearts in order to get your attention. And, and there's stories, I hear stories all the time, I can share stories, yours are probably even worse than some of the ones that I share, where you are walking through seasons where you are, you are troubled, your heart is stirred in a negative way, and 
in the midst of that, God is grabbing your attention. This is Psalm 10, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. And often he brings about trouble to break through that pride so that you turn your attention and look to the Father. It's good for him to bring about trouble in our hearts in order to get our attention. Verse 4. I, King Nebi, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. He, he just said life is good. He's been ruling for a long time. We, we think that he has about 10 years left in his reign. He's been going for a while. Everything's good. I had a dream and it frightened me. While in my bed, the images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me when the magicians, the mediums, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in. I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. He hadn't learned his lesson yet. He's like, there's one guy that can figure this out, but I'm going to invite these clowns in anyway, see what they say. Verse 8, finally, Daniel, named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, lowercase g, that's good there, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me, I told him the dream, Belshazzar, her head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind as I was lying in bed, I saw this. And this is where he begins, of course, to share this dream with him. And you're going you're gonna to hear some things that probably push you to think garden thoughts. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The, the tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. This is sort of like the Tower of Babylon, either the Tower of Babel eventually is what that became. Um, you think about that from Genesis chapter 11. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant. And on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. Like he, he's great at this point. This is all about him. This tree is him, and he's, he's tall, and he's strong, and, and he's providing. Its leaves are beautiful. Its fruit is abundant. The animals are finding shelter there. All of this was happening. Verse 13, and as I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher. It's the only time that this word is used in the Old Testament. It's used three times in this chapter to describe this angel, this holy one here. It's a unique word. Visions of my mind, a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He, he called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it and the tender grass of the field. Let it be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let it be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms he gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because none of the wise men of the kingdom can make the interpretation known to me, but you can, 
because you have a spirit of the holy gods. And, and when I read that, now, I've read a lot of books about this. I've read a lot of commentaries about this. I kind of know what the dream means. But if I'm hearing that, based off of his other dreams, I would just instantly go, hey, that's about you. You're just the big dumb tree, and he's about to cut you up. Like, this is kind of where it's at. And I think, because King Nebuchadnezzar is smart, he knows this to be true already. But he surrounded himself with cowards that he called magicians and, and diviners and Chaldeans who wouldn't dare tell him what the dream meant. I don't even think that it was because they didn't understand it. I just think if we tell him what we think this means because I think it's kind of obvious to us, he's probably going to kill us. And so he goes to the guy who he knows is not just like a yes man, but he's going to tell him the truth. And this is an encouragement to you. If you want God to, to really change your life in ways that maybe you don't always see or that you're struggling with or you know that are sin issues that you can't overcome, quit surrounding yourself with people that coddle you. Quit surrounding yourself with people that encourage your sin. Quit surrounding yourself with people when you, when you say, hey, would you pray, about, pray for me about this? They're like, yeah, I'll pray for you, but they don't stop right then and beg the Lord for you. Surround yourself with people who are going to contend for you because this is what's fixing to happen. And I love, I love his response here because, because Daniel, we're fixing to see, is, is, takes a turn, is really, really honest with him in the turn here. The, the king doesn't need him to just be like, Yes, let me coddle you a little bit. He needs him to tell the truth in his life. And, and when, I, when I say that, like I, I need you to surround yourself with people like that, but I also, it's a charge for you to be people like that. When, when people come to you and go, hey, I'm struggling with, if you would just go, this is what God's word says for you, not my encouragement to you. This is what we see in scripture. Would you live this way? Oh, you're struggling with that prayer? Let me, or you're struggling with that thing? Let me pray for you in that. You're struggling with that sin? I mean, Jesus really is clear, says, hey, if you see a brother who stumbles, get in the ditch with him. Don't engage in their sin, but help them out. Often we're like, I see that you're in the ditch. I'll call a tow truck. I'll, I'll pray. Maybe something divine will happen. And the whole time God is like, you have the strength to get in there and help them. I've, I've provided that in you. Would we be people that get in the ditch with others? This is what Daniel's going on to. So we, we see these two things already. All right, like it's good to honor God for the sorrow that leads to our repentance. It, it's good when God troubles our souls, he troubles our hearts in order to get our attention. And then this, it is good when God exposes our sin and calls us to righteousness. It's good when God exposes our sin and he calls us to righteousness. Verse 19, then Daniel was stunned for a moment. Like, I love that response. Daniel stunned for a moment and his thoughts alarmed him. And this is the type of relationship they had. The king says, Belshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. They're at this point now where he's like, hey, don't tell me what I need to hear. I see the trouble on your face. Be the type of guy that just, just shares what God has for me. Belshazzar answered, my Lord, May the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to the whole earth and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and on it was food for all. Under it all the wild animals lived and in its branches the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty. 
For, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and it even reaches the sky. And your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. Verse 23. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. It just means seven years, which is also a perfect number, which brings the punishment to completion. A lot tied up there. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. It's the testimony again. It's for the command to leave the tree's stump with its roots. Your kingdom will be restored. It'll be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. That's the only time that that language ever appears in scripture, like capital H, heaven. It will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. That should be a shirt. So it's like heaven rules. I mean, it's, it's literally saying that the God most high has set you in your position and he can take you from your position whenever you want to, but he is the one that rules. It's just a cool way to say that. Therefore, May my advice seem good to you, king. Separate yourself from the sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. I mean, I mean, he basically, in a lot of words, this is what God is bringing alive to him. This is Proverbs 16.5. You can write it over there next to it. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. This is what he's declaring to him. Daniel, this man of God, is stunned by the words that have been spoken over him. I don't, I don't think he's fearful of his life. I think he, he loves this king. He has a genuine affection for him for the years that they have been together. He's seen God do a work in his life. I think that he realizes he's close to salvation. And, and he understands, Ephesians 4, 15, like he is called to speak the truth in love to this guy. And so he does that. That's what he says. You king are the, are the big tree. You're going to get chopped down. The stump's going to be left. You're going to live like an animal outdoors in the fields for seven years. Strange thing. You're going, to, you're going to eat grass like a cow. All of this is going to happen to teach you this valuable lesson that the Most High is ruler over all the human kingdoms, and he gives them to whoever he wants. You're not special. He could chose it, chosen anyone to be you. And when you come to your spiritual senses, then you will get your kingdom back. Because our God is gracious. He's loving. He's quick to forgive. He shows mercy. And so this is what I need you to do. A, listen to my counsel. B, stop sinning and start doing what is right. C, stop your wicked injustices and show mercy to the oppressed. That's all of verse 27. Listen to me. Stop your sinning. Stop your wicked actions and show mercy to the oppressed. And if you do so, then God may be kind. And perhaps, I love that, perhaps there will be an extension to your prosperity. I don't know that to be true, but if you'll just function this way, like how I've done, then maybe he will choose to do this. Um, 
the book that I've been reading that's been helping me kind of think through this. Reread again um, the gospel according to Daniel. He says this, we must be willing to share the bad news with people that they are out of sorts with God, even as our heart breaks for them while saying it. We must be willing to tell others that God is not pleased with this pride, the human tendency to push him aside and to think that we are the measure of all things. We must be willing to say why God works against us so that we might one day know that he rules and not us. Finally, we must be ready to call for repentance and offer hope. Daniel did all of that. And then the text stops. We're not told what the king said on that day. In fact, the verses that follow take the reader into the future to at least a year later or even, and then seven periods of time beyond that. Clearly, God didn't feel any need for us to know how this private witness was received. He wanted us simply to see that it was given. Daniel didn't shrink from speaking God's word into the life of the most powerful man in the world. In doing so, he has provided us with an example of the backbone needed to be faithful when our opportunity comes. And come it will, for God is in the business of revealing himself to prominent, powerful people. It's such a, a cool way to think about this. And, and I love this. We don't see his response in between verse 27 and 28 to the conversation, but we do see this. The fourth point, it is good that God humbles us when we are arrogant and prideful. It is good that God humbles us when we are arrogant and prideful. This is Isaiah 2.17. The pride of mankind will be brought low and human loftiness will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. He, he's after that himself. It is good that God humbles us when we are arrogant and prideful. Let's just start reading verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so it's a year past this conversation, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Now you need to know he has a couple royal palaces in Babylon. We see three of them mentioned in the book of Daniel. So he could be at any one of his random houses. The king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? Bro, the dream. You dumb tree. Like, if I'm God, I'm not. But if I'm God and he says, I'm like, you're a stupid tree. That's just what I'm saying. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. And it does not say in the Hebrew dumb tree. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you, it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. Imagine hearing that. Your kingdom has departed from you. Verse 32, you will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. There's a reason that that, that becomes King Nebuchadnezzar's declaration in verse 17 is because he heard it from God. As soon as he had these thoughts, God speaks this to him, the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants. And at that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And you just went, what? You kind of wonder what this is if you go into the next chapter in 521. 
This is Daniel talking to the new king, and, and he reminds him of what happened to old King Nebi. In verse 21, he says, he was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. <laughs> He's out with the donkeys. He, he was fed grass like cattle. I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. Like if the donkey was feeding him. Some weird version of Shrek is happening out in Babylon. And his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God was ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. The testimony of his like cow days for seven years even echoes into the next ruler's little space here. This is, this is what's happening to him. And we have to see it is good that God humbles us when we are arrogant and prideful. He shoots a warning at him. He's like, here's a dream, you big dumb tree. And then a year later, he, he says, but this is what I built. This is mine from the rooftops. And God says, done. Pushes him out. And, and there's this disease, I wrote it down, I don't know if I'm going to find it, that literally where people think that they are cows. It's a disease that people literally struggle with. It's a, it's a mental thing that happens to them. And they go out and they begin to act like that. They don't cut their hair. Their nails begin to grow really long. They eat grass. And this is probably what's happening to him. And so while the king is still crowning his own greatness, the words are still on his mouth, this is what God does. I'm taking your kingdom. I'm driving you away from humanity. You're living with the animals. You're going to act like an animal. You're going to eat like an animal. And this will last as long as it takes, seven years, the number of completion. And I do that because I set people up and I tear people down. I give kingdoms to whoever I want. And it happens immediately. That disease, I just saw it. Boanthropy. You want to go look at it. People struggle with this. It's where one imagines oneself a cow or a bull and acts accordingly so. It's, it's just a crazy thing that it happens to him. This guy once saw himself as superhuman. He becomes non-human. He becomes sub-man at this point. God is teaching him this lesson. He eats grass like a cow, not the food of a man. He sleeps in the field, not in one of his palaces with a great bed. He has fingernails and toenails like the claws of a bird, not like a well-taken-care-of, groomed human. The one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own. He refuses to share what he has with the poor, and he becomes poorer than the poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart has been spiritually and inwardly, a beast. God allows that to happen to him. If this is what you are and this is how you're going to act, then let me give you that identity. And for seven years, he walks in that. And this is, this is Galatians 6, 7. It should stir and you. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a person sows, he reaps. This is what Daniel's doing. God gives him what he desires, what he's acting like. And this is where it turns. It goes from this idea that it's good that our God humbles us when we are arrogant to this. It is good to praise God because he always does what's right. It is good to praise God because he always does what's right. You saw the first three verses. You understand the prequel to the story. He's, he's saying, hey, let your prosperity increase. Let me tell you about the miracles and wonders that God did for me. His miracles are great. He's mighty. He's, he's praising God. And then we, we read the story, but... What was the turning point of the story? He's a cow, acting like a cow. He's, he's eating grass. He's homeless. He's poorer than anyone else. He's lost his kingdom. The tree has been cut down. The stump still remains. What is it going to take for Daniel's interpretation of the dream to come alive in his life? I love this. Verse 34. But at the end of those days, I, 
Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven. And there could just be a hard stop there. We could have been like, yeah, that, that's the solution. That's it. I just looked up to heaven. And my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And this is such a sweet response. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. I thought mine was, but it's his. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. I was all about me, but I know it's going to last for a long time because he's the one that set it up. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. I'm one of those. I'm an inhabitant of the earth, and I am nothing. I understand that now. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? And I love this, James 4, 6. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You go to verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, that's not like a prescription to get the best job and the best palace and the best wife or the best husband and the best food. That's not it. It's not like I'm going to live a humble life and God's going to bless me. He's going to spoil me with earthly things. That's not what that verse says. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2. I lift my eyes towards the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so as he is out there, outside of his mind, acting like a cow, he does what the Bible prescribes. And I don't know if he knew Psalm 121. I don't think that he had, you know, the copy of the leather-bound Bible in his room all the way up through the Psalms before everything else happened. But he just knew at that point he needed to turn his eyes to where his help comes from because he's heard it over and over from Daniel. If you would just do this. And when he does, his sanity is returned to him. He looks not only up from the hills, but up to heaven. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. And then he goes into worship. And then verse 36. At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and even more greatness came to me. Can you, can you imagine being on that board? You're, you're the advisor of old King Nebi, and, and all of a sudden on his rooftop, you hear him mooing. And what is he doing? You watch him lose his mind and go out in and hang out with the wild donkeys and be fed grass. Hair grows out, nails grow out, and it lasts for seven years. I mean, at that point, you probably go, he's done, that the pressure was too much. There's no reason for him to ever be reestablished at this point. And then all of a sudden, he looks up to the hills, and, I, and I, I have to believe that he wanders back into the village or into the city looking like what he was looking like and going, hey, uh, I'm good now. I know it's been seven years, but I'm good and they're probably like, zero chance. All right, we got to get you cleaned up. Like, imagine this story playing out. And for some reason, his reasoning is returned to him. He does what a right-thinking person at this point would do. And it's not beg for people to take him back. It, it's not, I need, to, I need to get back into the palace so I can take a bath. When it happened, I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. This is his response. He, he responds in worship. It's the, it's the proper response to us. 
And then that act leads to his restoration. I was reestablished over my kingdom, verse 36, and even more greatness came to me. That's not the reason he did it. He responded in worship, not to get all this back, but this is in God's goodness. Verse 37, now I, King Nebi, praise, exalt, and glorify the capital K, King of heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is his song of praise and his testimony. I was humble, and God was able to do that even though I was walking in my pride because he is so great. He doesn't get any credit for the kingdom as it stands now. He's been absent for seven years, but God restores, and he gives God the proper reason. He gives God the proper praise. He gives God the proper um, fault is what I want to say there for everything that happened, and this is what he did. I love this. I praise, exalt, and glorify the king. Why? You can underline these. All his works are true. Just hold on to that. Like all God's works are true. What else? His ways are just. Such a a sweet promise is his ways are just in us and he is able. You could stop there, but he gives this testimony. Like hold on to he is able, but he's able to humble those who walk in pride. And, and this, end of quotations, is his last words in Scripture. That's his testimony to us. He's now dead. He's not on campus handing out tracts. He's gone. But the king of heaven who this testimony is about, the most high God who he continues to remind us of this, is still on his throne, and he's sovereign over the universe. And with this, you have to go, Daniel 4 has just given me Sweet pictures of Jesus. We got to understand this. God is who he is, and we are not any of those things. We won't be the king. We won't be the Lord. We won't be the God. He is going to be all of those things. And I love that we read this in Daniel chapter 4. And if you fast forward to the end, which Daniel sort of does this every so often, and you get to Revelation 19, and you get to see Jesus coming from the clouds with his jersey, I want to call it that, with with his robe that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the matching thigh tat that says the same thing. Just like, hey, I got this. You think that you are this, but I want you to see it as I come down and be humbled at that point. And he's just declaring it at this point. He is these things. He is the King of the heavens. He is Lord over all. And so you have Nebuchadnezzar, who's just a man, And you have Christ, who is the eternal God. You have Nebuchadnezzar, who is this sinful guy. You have Christ, who is sinless. You have King Nebi, who is merciless. Like, it just showed no mercy to anybody. And you have the merciful King Jesus. You have King Nebi, who tried to glorify himself all the time. You have Jesus, who humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. King Nebi would never do that. In fact, in fact, he aspired for sovereignty. He wanted to be godlike. Jesus said, I didn't come to be king. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. He humbled himself in that way. King Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself and was humbled by God. Jesus humbled himself and sits at God's right hand. We are called to be Christ-like. And the only way that happens is the only way that Nebi came to that realization. You look up. 
You just learn to look up. You're going to hear me say this to you a lot of times in conversation. I'm just going to say, hey, keep looking up. Like, a lot of times it's an encouragement I say to people. It's like, hey, you did a great job. Keep looking up. Um, because that's where we see Jesus. And, and here's the response that we have to Daniel 4, and the band's going to make their way up. Just to be reminded of these things right here. This is Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read this to you. You can make this note if you want, but I, I just want you to hear this. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, do not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the most important part to the glory of God the Father, because you are called to be Christ-like, not for your own exaltation, not for your own kingdom. You are called to be all of these things to the glory of God. And that's it. And hear me. It is right for God to humble you. It is right for God to take you through seasons of difficulty. It is right for God to break you of your pride so that he gets glory and you get rescued. It is right for him to do that. Let me pray for you, and then we can respond and worship. God, we thank you that your ways are not ours. We thank you that they are higher than us. We thank you that there are things that we don't understand. We thank you for difficult situations. And, and I pray for honesty. Like, like we can declare, God, I don't like that. I don't enjoy the space that I'm in. But for some reason, I'm walking through it, and you're sovereign over everything. You set up kings, and you tear down kings for your glory. You are the most high God and you will put people in place of kingdoms to rule whenever you like. And so God, we have to trust in your sovereignty. You've put us here. You've put us as, as students, young men and women in a community to live out all that you've commanded us to for your glory. And when we miss it and when we're wandering off and when we're chasing our, our own little kingdoms, it is right for you to, to go after us, to break us, to restore us by your kindness, to bring us back home. And so may we recognize that. May we recognize that for your glory. Whatever season we're walking through, some of us may be like right in the middle of that just brokenness, and some of us may be in the, on the path of running from you and knowing that you're fixing to grab us and pull us back. And in any of those spaces, may we loudly declare, as King Nebuchadnezzar did, like you're God. You are the God most high. You set up and you tear down for your glory. And in that, I will exalt your name. I will praise you. May that be our response. And in that, may our testimony be loud like his. As we said at the beginning, would you, would you give us that type of story? That you're a God who restores. You're a God that's faithful, that brings back. And our last words would be, we're just going to praise you for who you are no matter what, because you're good to do so. And may we respond in a way that gives you glory by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand and worship. Here's the, the response. You're, you're welcome to go and talk to any of our leaders as the Lord is stirring something in you in that way. Um, but also just, just make this space a, a space of freedom to respond in whatever way God is leading you to as we worship.